Well, thank you all for coming out today to the, uh, the F.A. Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Tanner, and I'm a senior fellow here at Cato. I've been working on a health care issue back since, uh, back since the days of Hillary Care. Uh, so some things uh, never seem to change. Uh, we are at a time when health care is the hot topic in Washington, for anyone not on the Senate Judiciary Committee, that is. Uh, as you know, yesterday the U.S. Uh, ho- in the U.S. House, uh, the Democrats unveiled a one- approximately $1.5 trillion health care reform bill. And this morning, on a uh, 13 to 10 party line vote, the Senate uh, Help Committee, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, uh, passed its version of a health care reform bill. So health care is clearly moving forward. Today we want to talk a little bit about what that sort of health care means. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt, whichever side of the issue you're on, the, uh, of the fact that the health care bills that are being considered and the general principles that the president has put forward would mean a significant increase in the amount of government control over the U.S. health care system, uh, if not, uh, as I believe, an actual takeover of the U.S. health care system by the federal government. But what does government-run health care really mean? Does, and that's what we're going to talk about today. To do that, we have two speakers. Uh, first will be Michael Cannon, who is the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, You'll know him because he is the other bald health care expert at Cato named Michael. Uh, He used to actually have a beard, but we said that people had to have some way to tell us apart, so we we made him shave. but, uh, but he has been working uh, for a number of years at Cato, has some very important uh, papers that are out, some of which are available outside, uh, including uh, one on the whole question of what is socialized medicine and is that uh, what the Democrats are actually talking about. Uh, delighted to have him here to talk a little bit about what the Democratic plans are on the Hill and uh, what do they mean in terms of government-run health care. And then uh, our second speaker will be Sally Pipes, who's the president and CEO at the Pacific Research Institute, uh, is one uh, of the true experts on health care in this country. You see her uh, editorials frequently in the Wall Street Journal, write about that all the time there, uh, see her on TV uh, all the time talking about health care. Uh, she has a new book uh, out, which I believe will be available outside, called The Top Ten Myths of American Health Care. And finally... Uh, She is also a former Canadian, so she has seen government-run health care firsthand, and I'm sure she'll have something to tell us about that as well. So without wasting any more time, uh, because I know we're standing between you and food upstairs, uh, I will turn this over to Michael Cannon. Uh, He'll be, after he talks, he'll be slipping out, unfortunately. He has a train to catch, uh, but we'll then move right on to Sally. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike, for for putting this uh, event together. Sally, for uh, coming and agreeing to share a stage with us and um, share your um, 
very important and firsthand perspectives on what government-run healthcare actually looks like um, uh, up north. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what government-run healthcare really means uh, in in the context of well, th- three things that we can expect to get from uh, from the legislation that's being incur- that's being that's making its way through Congress right now. Uh, those three things are special interest control. Health, the legislation in Congress uh, will serve special interests, not consumers. The second is stagnation. Government-run health care implies that uh, we're not going to see constant improvements in cost and quality. At best, cost and quality will stagnate, and at worst, th- they will fall. And three, rationing. Ultimately, if we follow the approach that President Obama, the congressional Democrats are advocating we take with health care reform, the government is going to be rationing care for American patients, deciding who gets uh, what treatments and uh, using other tools uh, to contain health care spending uh, that are uh, entirely independent of the value of the services that are, that are under consideration. So first, special interests. If you want to know who's going to be pulling the strings – under the legislation that's before Congress, really, uh, President Obama is trying to help you understand that right now by, uh, or with all of these announcements that he has reached an agreement with this or that industry group. For example, uh, and we've been treated to a number of these over the, over the past few weeks, though they're sold as examples of industry groups putting their self-interest aside so that they can make a contribution to health care reform, what's actually happening is the administration is carving up the industry, picking winners and losers based on who's going to get the administration's reform across the goal, reforms across the goal line. So first, let's have a look at this, uh, this deal that they made with the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical lobby, Pharma, announced that it would – uh, make a eight, an eighty billion dollar contribution to healthcare re- reform. Now, how would they do this? Well, they would give discounts to seniors who are caught in Medicare's um, donut hole. That's the part of the Medicare Part D uh, prescription drug coverage uh, where the seniors are spending or uh, are, are paying a hundred percent of their drug costs. Pharma said that they would give those seniors a fifty percent discount on the on the drugs within that donut hole. Well, that's that's fantastic. Hey, less expensive drugs for seniors. What the what Pharma and the Obama administration did not rush to tell anyone is another part of that deal, which is that uh, while seniors would only be paying half price, the full price of that drug would still count toward their reaching that catastrophic deductible, where taxpayers are paying ninety five percent of their drug costs. So if seniors are only paying half price, the full price is counting toward the deductible. More seniors are going to hit that deductible, and taxpayers are going to be paying the pharmaceutical companies more, not less, under this deal. And if you want to know how much more, it's a safe bet that it's going to be more than $80 billion more, or else the pharmaceutical lobby wouldn't have signed up for this deal. So um, next, we heard that Walmart uh, gave the administration a boost by agreeing to support a key elements of its uh, health care reforms, a mandate requiring that all pl- employers offer health benefits to their workers. Now, an administration official called this significant. I mean, you've got the largest private employer in the United States agreeing uh, that the government should impose requirements on employers to provide health benefits to their workers. It's like Nixon going to China. But again, this is hardly an example of, 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 uh, of corporate altruism. What Walmart, Walmart was actually doing was asking the government to kneecap its competitors. As a, a lobbyist for, for Walmart rather candidly explained to me in, a number of years ago, the reason Walmart supports an employer mandate is because any employer mandate, even if it hurts Walmart a little bit, is going to hurt Walmart's competitors a lot more. And that's going to bolster Walmart's position in the retail industry. 
Oh, and by the way, eliminate maybe 300,000 jobs along the way and increase the price of bread. But, but uh, again, you know, this, this agreement where Walmart is supposedly uh, putting aside its self-interest to serve the public interest is really uh, more an example of, uh, of naked self-interest on Walmart's part and the administration carving up the industry, handing out favors to people in order uh, to get its reforms across the goal line. And Walmart isn't the only company that the administration is working that, uh, on whom the administration is working this protection racket. The New York Times reports that Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff, has been in touch with other CEOs, and many CEOs are very receptive to this uh, employer mandate. All this from a president who says, who says healthcare reform is going to make uh, American companies more competitive. And finally, we have uh, the deal with the hospitals. You may have heard Vice President Joe Biden announce that uh, America's hospitals are going to donate contribute, what have you, uh, $155 billion to health care reform. They've agreed to let the government cut payments to hospitals by $155 billion over the next 10 years. Again, it sounds great, but uh, the, the, the cuts in those payments will take effect over time. We've seen physician groups, uh, the American Medical Association and other physician groups, block scheduled cuts in, uh, in payments to physicians. There's no reason to think the hospitals wouldn't be able to do the same. And more importantly, this, the, the deal with the hospitals uh, included a, a number of protections for the hospitals that were party to the deal and not for other hospitals. For example, there are unspecified protections uh, that would hold back competing physician-owned hospitals who are not party to the agreement. And there's also an agreement that the president said that any cuts in hospital payments would be across the board, as opposed to targeted at high-cost hospitals. Now, what's interesting about that is if you watch the town hall meeting from the White House where the president and Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson were talking about health care reform, the president said, and I quote, when he's talking about the Mayo Clinic and, uh, and McAllen, Texas, he compared uh, Mayo to McAllen, Texas, where, quote, costs are actually a third higher than they are at Mayo, but the outcomes are worse. Now, what's interesting about across-the-board cuts in Medicare payments to hospitals is it cuts payments to more efficient hospitals like the Mayo Clinic. As much as it cuts payments to McAllen, it hurts the Mayo Clinic while still paying McAllen more. They're not targeted to the value that these or the efficiency of these uh, of these hospitals. So you have this, this bizarre thing where the, or this bizarre situation where the president is actually praising the Mayo clinics in, in this country, but then, uh, adopting, uh, a reform that's actually going to undercut them in order to get his reforms, uh, across the goal line. Incidentally, the Mayo clinics, um, uh, asso- uh, lobbying association, the Minnesota hospital association has formed a coalition to block this very provision. So you've got the president both uh, praising the Mayo Clinic and then coming under uh, and then um, turning his back on them and, and being criticized by them. Now, each of these agreements, you know, they were negotiated behind closed doors, away from public scrutiny. All are contingent on the favored groups getting what they want and all can be undone by future lobbying. So to paraphrase George Bailey, Potter isn't selling. Potter is buying. And far from being game changers, what these agreements are, they're the same old Washington game. They're of, of bribes, backroom deals, profiteering, and protectionism. These are decisions under government or in health care are going to be made not on the value that, uh, that, that those decisions or, or different options will provide to consumers, but based on what gets to 50 votes in the Senate. And so if you want health care under uh, a government-run system uh, or under the legislation, I should say, that the Democrats are moving through Congress, I'd advise you get a good lobbyist or maybe even move to a swing state.
because that's really the best way to ensure access to health care. Now, with all that special interest influence, you also get a lot of stagnation. Uh, in healthcare, the president ob- uh, the president complains that we lack electronic medical records, we lack telemedicine, coordinated care, all sorts of uh, innovations that, that make healthcare better and more convenient. We lack comparative effectiveness research that'll tell us what uh, treatments work best, and we face an epidemic of medical errors. Well, it may come as a surprise to the president, but there are actually health plans that offer all of these features right now. The reason that uh, they're not they haven't caught on is that government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, government regulation like insurance licensing and clinician licensing at the state level, and silly government mistakes, uh, historical accidents like the tax break for employer-sponsored health insurance protect the old way of doing things. These health plans, and they go by names like Group Health Cooperative, Kaiser Permanente, that offer electronic medical records and those other innovations, are out there improving the quality of care, but you can't choose them. And why? Well, because the old guard wants it that way. And they use all the levers that these government programs and regulations provide them to keep uh, the money flowing toward them and prevent it from flowing toward better, cheaper, and safer ways of delivering medicine. Now, of course, that money can't keep flowing indefinitely. The Congressional Budget Office tells us that existing government commitments imply that income tax rates will have to rise by mid-century to uh, nearly double what they are right now, with, a high, w- with the highest rate in the neighborhood of 66%. And the reason for that, uh, that those, those higher tax rates is mostly government health care programs, mostly Medicare and Medicaid. But Americans are not likely to – oh, and that's before I should mention the five – percent surcharge that the House Democrats bill would impose, uh, which would uh, bring the top rate over 70 percent. Now, Americans are not likely to tolerate tax rates that are that high. So eventually the the government will someone's going to have to say no. And the government is going to be put in the position of having to ration care. And that's and that process is not going to be pretty. There are a number of ways that that the government could go about this. Uh, One of them you might call the British model. That is uh, a because the United Kingdom has created a, something that it calls the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE. It's a government agency that essentially decides whether your life or another year of your life is worth spending $35,000, whether a year of your life is worth that much, or if your disease is popular enough, or if your lobbyist is good enough, they might even spend, uh, they might even decide that your life is worth $50,000 and be willing to spend that much on a treatment to keep you alive for a year. Now, President Obama and, uh, and congressional Democrats have already launched an agency that, that could be uh, uh, seen as a, a, a precursor of this sort of rationing board. Uh, they promise that it, they, it was part of the stimulus bill. They promise that this agency won't be making those sorts of life and death decisions, but that's just not credible. If they want to contain health care spending and the government controls half of the, uh, half of the money now and it's going to control even more under their legislation – it would, it's inevitable that the government would have to start making these decisions, particularly since it's already got that agency set up uh, to do that sort of thing. And so we're going to get explicit rationing. Uh, under the, one, thing that government imply, one form of rationing the government applies is explicit rationing. There's other ways of rationing access to health care, though. You might call them Im- implicit rationing, and one of them is price controls. You just pay the doctors less. Patients have a harder time finding a doctor, and then patients end up using fewer services. This is what government does in the Medicaid program already. There are estimates that 20 to 40 percent of doctors won't even participate in the Medicaid program. And so you get perverse uh, and, and I think shameful episodes like we saw in 2007 
where a young boy in Maryland named Diamante Driver, Driver was not able to get a dentist appointment, and so the infection in, in his abscessed tooth spread to his brain, and he ultimately died. At, at the age of 12, a victim of price controls. There are other ways of implicitly rationing care. You might call uh, uh, one of them the Canadian model, where the government uh, creates financial incentives and encourages doctors and hospitals to ration care. So they're not making explicit rationing decisions. And that is what uh, President Obama told the American Medical Association he would do, change the way we pay doctors and hospitals so it more closely resembles the way that they pay doctors and hospitals in Canada. Give them a fixed budget per episode of care, per patient, or per illness, and encourage the doctors to make those rationing decisions. Now, I was going to say that, um, well, actually, this is, this is uh, Massachusetts has already done all three of these things. Spending, when Massachusetts decided that it would embark on its uh, experiment with universal coverage, it required individuals to purchase insurance. It required employers to offer insurance. Spending, uh, and it offered subsidies to help people comply with those man- mandates. Private spending on healthcare in Massachusetts was already high, and it is... Uh, uh, exploded from the, those already high levels. The same thing has happened with public spending. And Massachusetts is now looking to all three of these rationing approaches. Uh, look, they've uh, formed a commission that is, uh, that is recommending explicit rationing based on evidence, what they call evidence-based purchasing, which is, we don't think that this treatment is going to help you, so you're not going to get it. They're experimenting with Canadian-style rationing. The commission is advocating a single payment system uh, for the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which you might call global capitation, which is precisely what they have in Canada. And I was going to, uh, I, I was going to say that these were all the options that, uh, that uh, existed for rationing care under a government-run system, but then Massachusetts surprised me this morning. They came up with another one. Actually, I guess I had known about this one, but I'd forgotten about it until I read the New York Times, uh, which reminded me that, that, that there's another option for uh, rationing access to health care services, which is just denying health care to unpopular people. In Massachusetts, it has been decided that uh, the Commonwealth will cancel health insurance for 30,000 legal immigrants. These aren't even the really unpopular illegal immigrants. These are the legal ones. These are the ones we want to have here. But Massachusetts can't afford all the promises that it's made, and so it is eliminating subsidies for 30,000 legal immigrants who thought they had health insurance coverage. So um, and they've also decided that they're going to stop auto-enrolling uh, low-income people in, in, in their Medicaid programs. So yet, there's yet another uh, implication of, of government-run health care, which is that you had better be popular if you want to get uh, access to health services. Final, and so in conclusion, I think the public needs to take a long, hard look at the legislation before Congress and decide if they really want to give special interests even more control over America's health care and their, their own health care decisions, if they want more stagnation uh, and to suppress innovations even more than government already has in this country, and uh, most important, if they want to invite the government to ration health care to American patients. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. I, as I said, he has, unfortunately has got to leave us, but you can always reach him here at Cato with, uh, with your questions for him. I, I do know he talked about the, all the deals being cut to, uh, to pass health care reform. I uh, do note that in the health bill, there's uh, more than $100 billion in things like grants to create new sidewalks and building projects and, and uh, special grants uh, in, in terms of uh, buying votes in the Senate in, in these bills. Anyway, uh, let's pass it on to Sally, who will tell us a little bit more firsthand about what government health run health care means. 
Thank you, Michael, and it's a delight to be here today. I see being the senior person, you were able to keep your beard and you were able to put pressure on Michael to get rid of his beard. Um, so, yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm now an, I've been an American for two and a half years, but I still have my Canadian uh, citizenship. It, it allows me to uh, cause trouble with the Canadian health care system. <laughs> um, what I thought I would do is um, talk about the two visions for health care reform and then talk about what, myth number 10 in my book, The Top 10 Myths of American Health Care, and that is that um, socialized systems such as exist in Canada and Europe are cheaper and more efficient than what we have here in America. And then I'll just give a brief synopsis of how that relates to what I think um, the President and the Senate and the House want to do in health care reform here, and then end up with a few solutions. So that's sort of my plan, and I plan to do that in 20 minutes or less, so we can have time for some questions. What I like to say is understanding health care is similar to unraveling an onion. There are many layers and many tearful moments. I do think that we would all agree that we want affordable, accessible, quality health care for all Americans. That is our goal. The question is, how do we reach that goal? And there are two competing visions for health care reform today, one which relies on patient-centered solutions, empowering patients and doctors, and encouraging innovation in pharmaceuticals, biologics and new cancer drugs, and medical device. The other vision is, let's focus on increasing the role of government in our health care. And unfortunately, this is the vision that is on the rise in America today. It's a sort of Medicare for all vision. And that is the vision that President Obama supports and many people um, in, in the House and the Senate. I think that people in Canada think that the United States has a free market in health care. Very few people understand that 47% of the healthcare industry in this country is in the hands of government, whether it's through Medicare, the program for the elderly, Medicaid, the program for low-income Americans, the state children's health insurance program, which has just been beefed up by another $32 billion, and the Veterans Administration program. So we have a lot of government, and now our, the administration wants to take over that other 53% of the healthcare industry that they don't have control of. So now I'm going to turn to the myth that um, universal systems such as exist in Canada and Britain are more efficient and cheaper. Michael Moore, in his movie Sicko, where I do have a cameo appearance, and where my husband keeps saying, I don't know why you don't get royalties for your appearance in that movie, I'd like to ask how many people in the audience saw Sicko? More than in most, it's probably because you're all in the healthcare business, but I often say in large audiences that aren't, aren't in the think tank world, well, no wonder it was a flop at the box office. But Michael Moore in his movie always points to the fact that countries like Canada, England, France, Cuba have free health care. Well, these programs are not free, and they're paid for by taxes, and they end up with people being denied care. But Canada, the country where I'm from, um, is is a good example. And Michael Moore used his um, 
the, the interview that I did with Bill O'Reilly, where O'Reilly asked me, what do you think of the Canadian health care system? And I said, well, I don't like it, and gave the three reasons. He, of course, didn't include the reasons in the film, but he used it as an introduction to those Canadians that he interviewed who supposedly love the Canadian health care system. Well, I can tell you that those Canadians that he interviewed are people who've never really had to use the Canadian health care system for anything serious. So the U.S. today spends 16% of its gross domestic product on health care, and we're told by the president and many that we are spending too much. Now, I don't know whether we're spending too much. Perhaps we're spending too little. The American public demands the very finest in health care. On the other hand, Canada spends about 10% of its gross domestic product on health care. When the government took over our health care system in the 1970s, um, the government thought, well, everybody is going to have health care and it's going to be very reasonable. What they didn't realize is that when people think something is free, they demand a lot more of it. As a result, they couldn't afford it. So what did they do? The government set up a global budget and said, we are only going to spend 10% of our GDP on health care. As a result, Canadians have long waiting lists for care, rationed or denied care, and lack of access to the latest technology. So let's take a quick look at the facts. 750,000 Canadians are on a waiting list for a procedure. Now, people in America probably think, well, that's not very many people. It's less than a million. But the point is Canada has a population of 33 million people. There are fewer people in Canada than there are in the state of California. So we have 750,000 just waiting to get a procedure. 17% or 5 million out of the 33 million are people who are waiting to get a primary care doctor. So when you hear and read on the front page of the New York Times that we can reduce costs by having more primary care doctors and we can um, pay specialists less, I can tell you that in Canada... There are very few people go into primary care because it's the lowest paid um, doc on the totem pole. And so everybody wants to become a specialist, so we have 17% of Canadians waiting just to get a primary care doctor. The average wait today in Canada from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist is 17.3 weeks. That is over four months. And we also, if you look at um, medical um, uh, testing, Canada ranks 14th, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, 14th out of 25 countries within the OECD in MRI machines and 19th out of 25 countries in access to CT scanners. Mr. Lindsay McCreeth of, um, of, of the province of Ontario, when he was suffering severe uh, head uh, headaches and seizures, he went to his primary care doctor who said, yes, you are having seizures, but you will have to wait four months until you can get an MRI. Lindsay McCreeth took himself to Buffalo, New York, and paid for his MRI, and they did find that, yes, he did have a brain tumor. He brought his MRI back to Ontario, where his doctor said, yes, you have a brain tumor. Now we have to get you an appointment with a neurosurgeon. But that will be another four months. So Lindsay McCreeth went back to Buffalo and had his brain surgery done. And he says he is alive today because he didn't have to wait eight months um, to have his brain tumor removed. 
He is suing the Ontario government because of the long wait, and he's suing them to get payment for what he had necessarily had, had done in, uh, in America. People who live in countries with socialist government-run systems wait and wait. Silvio Berlusconi, the um, f- uh, Prime Minister of Italy, when he was told that he needed a heart pacemaker, he didn't listen to Michael Moore and have it implanted in Rome or Paris or London, even Havana, Cuba. He came here to the Cleveland Clinic where he had his heart pacemaker installed. My mother, who in June 2005 was convinced she had colon cancer, and she went to her primary care doctor who said, no, you don't have colon cancer. So living in San Francisco, when my mother told me that, I said, well, how does he know? And she said, well, he just told me I didn't. So I said, well, call him back and tell him you need a colonoscopy. So she did. And so she went to see him, and he said, well, at your age, we cannot provide a colonoscopy for you. We'll do an X-ray. Now, anyone in the medical profession will know that an X-ray will not show whether you have colon cancer, but it's certainly cheaper than having a colonoscopy. In late November, my mother called me and said, I have colon cancer. I said, how do you know? And she said, because I'm hemorrhaging uh, from my colon. So I called the doctor, and I said, well, now what do we do? And he said, well you'll need to take an, get her to, into an ambulance to go to the hospital to get into the emergency room because if you take her, she will never even get into the emergency room. It'll be a tremendous wait. So we arrived at the emergency room, and my mother spent two days in the emergency room. But the more interesting fact was that then she spent two more days in the transit lounge at Vancouver General Hospital. I don't know how many of you travel internationally, but if you fly from San Francisco to London on your way to Rome, you spend a few hours in the transit lounge in transit waiting for your plane. But to spend two days in a transit lounge waiting to get a bed in a ward is not, I think, what the American people want. My mother finally got a colonoscopy um, in the hospital, and she died two weeks later. Her colon cancer was so severe. When governments control hospital budgets, this is one way to keep costs down by denying care. When I turned 50, hard to believe, but I did, my doctor in San Francisco said, you have to have a colonoscopy. And I said, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need a colonoscopy. And he said, well, we want to get a um, baseline about you know, your colon. And so I had one, and I will have one every five years because that is what is good, and that's what the American people want. That does not happen under a system such as exists in Canada. A woman in Calgary, Alberta, Canada's third largest city, the most American of Canadian cities because of the oil and gas industry, she was expecting quadruplets. So she called her doctor and said, I think I'm in labor. He said, well, I'll call you back. And she said, all right. And he called back and he said, you know, we don't have a single neonatal unit for your delivery here in Calgary. Also, we don't have one in Alberta. And we can't find one in any neighboring province. But we will airlift you to Great Falls, Montana, a city of 55,000, where your quadruplets will be delivered. And that is exactly what happened. But as a Canadian, and as many Canadians do, Canadians have an escape valve. They can come to the United States and get health care, and a lot of them do, and they're not just wealthy Canadians. They're middle-income Canadians who want to live a long and healthy life. So when you hear the president and people in the administration saying, we can reduce costs if we don't have so many expensive um, hospital specialty units and specialty hospitals, you know, for this woman whose quads were um, delivered successfully, 
it was very important not only to her life, but to the life of her quadruplets, and she had that escape valve. If you look at the United Kingdom, because of the long waiting list there, now Britain, under the National Health Service, they have... Uh, they allow private health care to run parallel to the NHS. And they, the, the government took over the health service in Britain in 1947. And when the Canadians were talking about taking over the health care system in the 70s, they went to England to find out, well, what are the good things and what are the bad things? And the thing that was most important to the people in Britain and told the Canadians was, you do not want to allow private health care to run parallel to the um, government-run system because people then can make comparisons, and that's not a good idea. So Canada doesn't allow private health coverage. That's um, all run under the Canada Health Act, and each of the provinces manage their health care. So, so that's a very important point, and I think that is what the president wants here in America. He said at the annual meeting of the AFL-CIO a couple of years ago, if I were to design this health care system from scratch, I would design a single-payer health care system. He knows he can't do it overnight, but he wants to take us slowly from A to Z. Belinda Stronach, member of par- former member of parliament in Canada, her father, Frank uh, Stronach, Magna, big auto parts manufacturer. She was elected as a uh, conservative and then a liberal in parliament. She opposed opening up the Canadian health care system to any private alternative. And yet, when Belinda Stronach, in June 2007, was diagnosed with breast cancer, what did she do? She didn't sit on a waiting list. She flew to UCLA and had her breast cancer surgery done and paid for it out of pocket. It was fine for her, but it's not fine for the majority of Canadians. As my dear friend in Vancouver, Dr. Brian Day, who is an orthopedic surgeon and the immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association, um, told me he grew up in Great Britain in council housing along with George Harrison of the Beatles. Most people here are too young to know who George Harrison is, but... But he grew up, as, and his father was a communist. He left England and came to Canada and trained as a doc and then did orthopedic specialty. And he runs a private clinic in Vancouver called the Canby Surgery. The British Columbia government is suing him because he is doing surgeries for, and MRIs for people who are paying out of pocket when they, have, they should, under the Canada Health Act, be waiting on a waiting list to get government-run care. When Brian was elected president of the CMA, he told the New York Times, Canada is a place where a family can get a hip replacement for their pet, their dog, in under a week, and yet Canadian families have to wait over two years to get a hip replacement. Is that what we want here in America? I think not. Canadians know that long waiting lists are intuitively wrong. They know ration care is wrong. And yet Canadian people are very, very nice, and they tend to be um, very polite and not cause a stir. As in a deba- I was on a debate program with um, Uvi Reinhardt from Princeton, who's a big single-payer supporter, but he did say, Sally, you are right. The American people, I find it hard to imagine that they will actually be pleased with staying on a waiting list. And my mom used to say, as the longer I'd lived in America, I hope you're not becoming one of those aggressive Americans, of course, which I have become. Um, but but it's, a different, it's a different mentality. Is there light at the end of the tunnel in Canada? Here we are moving our country down to a more government-run health care system, trying to take over that other 53%. 
The Canadian Supreme Court in June 2005 ruled, and the court in Canada, by the way, is not a conservative court. They ruled that the ban on private health care and private insurance was illegal because under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we're entitled to life, liberty, and the security of the person. When people in Quebec have to wait on a waiting list, they do not have security of the person. Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin of the court said, yes, Canada has universal coverage, but they do not have universal access. Access to a waiting list is not access to health care. And Madam Justice Marie Deschamps said, the idea of a single-payer health care system without waiting lists is an oxymoron. So here we are in Canada. There will be a number of other suits. I think Brian Day, if he loses his case in the Supreme Court, will now move ahead to the Canadian Supreme Court. If we can get British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario to have similar decisions by the Supreme Court, the Canadian health care system will be opened up to competition. And here in America, we're talking about going the other way. Um, Under uh, President Obama's plan, the Senate, the HELP bill, the finance bill, which we're waiting to see, the um, House bill, all of these bills are very, very expensive. As we know, the president said he is committed to health care reform. He said it during the campaign. He reiterated it when he came back. I think the four pillars of his plan, which are sort of in different versions of various bills, but um, there's the employer, the play or pay mandate, which is going to add, as Michael said, tremendously to the cost of employer-based health care, the employer-based health care, the uh, public plan, which is a government-run insurance plan, which will compete against private insurers. Uh, the Lewin Group has said that about 119 million people will lose their employer-based coverage and be moved into the um, government-run plan because it'll be cheaper for employers. The, private, the public plan I see will be priced lower than what private insurers can offer because of the mandates and regulations, guaranteed issue and community rating, which means an insurance company cannot discriminate based on your medical history, sex, or age. And so we're going to see private insurance crowded out. We are all going to end up in this public plan. We will have a single-payer health care system. It will not happen overnight, but it will happen uh, slowly and surely, and we will be faced with ration care, uh, long waiting lists for care, and lack of access to the latest technology. And most of the medical device and new pharmaceuticals, biologics, are developed in this country. They're not developed in Canada, in France, or in England. All of these insurance plans, the government plan and private plans, of course, will be under this national insurance exchange, um, patterned after the exchange um, in, in Massachusetts. And the fourth pillar, of course, is comparative effectiveness, um, which Michael talked about, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, where the government will decide, a, a government bureaucratic board, a federal coordinating council, will determine which medical treatments and which medical procedures are cost-effective as a pair, compared to medically effective. So if Courtney here is diagnosed with kidney cancer and the value of her life is $45,000 a year, and yet a new drug such as a Pfizer drug suitant for uh, kidney cancer is $55,000 a year, well, that would not be cost-effective for Courtney to have uh, suitant. So this is definitely what will happen, and it's going to be very detrimental to the long-term health of people here in America. So those are the four pillars of Obama's plans. Um, they range anywhere, as Michael said, from $600 billion to $1.6 trillion. I ask people, has anyone ever 
looked at a government program that has ever cost what a politician uh, thinks it will cost. And Michael, this Michael said, you know, you look at Medicare and Medicaid, $3 billion in the first year. They're supposed to cost $12 billion by, um, by 1990. You know, we're up in the $400 uh, billion each. And we're, you know, as even the CBO said, bankruptcy is forecast by 2017. So when you hear numbers like $1 trillion, $1.5 trillion, that is just the starting point and we, it is going to be very detrimental uh, to our health. You know, we need to change the tax code, eliminate the tax exclusion for individuals so that they have the same benefits. I support the refundable tax credit. I actually worked for Rudy Giuliani. I preferred the income tax deduction, but that's not going anywhere, and we don't see it actually um, in, within any of the Democratic bills. We need to buy health insurance across state lines. We need to reduce the number of mandates. There are 2,000 mandates in this country on health insurers um, across the country. There are 46 in California. I don't know how many there are here in D.C., but um, Massachusetts has about 48. Massachusetts has, you know, hair prostheses, alcohol rehabilitation, in vitro fertilization, the most expensive um, mandate that there is. And, you know, why should Michael Tanner have to buy an insurance plan that covers in vitro fertilization, unless he's planning on getting pregnant anytime soon and he hasn't told us, um, to cover if I want to have a plan that has in vitro fertilization? People should be able to buy the type of health insurance that fits their individual and family needs. We need competition, patient-centered solutions, will work if we have more competition. There will be more new entrants into the insurance industry and more options for people to choose the plan that, that is best for them. I also support medical malpractice reform. Med, you know, when people talk about how expensive health care is, frivolous lawsuits add tremendously to the cost of our health care because doctors practice defensive medicine because they are so afraid of being sued. My friend is a high-risk obstetrician at Mass General. She teaches at Harvard Brigham Women's, and um, when a young gal came in who was pregnant and she, her water had broken, she was four months pregnant, and Laura and her partner um, diagnosed the situation and said to the girl and her boyfriend that the baby could not live um, at this point, and the, and the boyfriend said, well, we're not listening to that, we're going home, and she came back two weeks later and died within an hour of a septic poisoning um, when she got to the hospital. The parents of this gal sued Laura and her partner for $40 million um, for not um, taking care of this situation. And it took two and a half years for the case to come to court. They won the case about six months ago. But as Laura and her partner said, the worry and stress of this case hanging over your head is just unbelievable. And they're paying $140,000 each for their medical malpractice. We're seeing in a lot of states where docs, OBGYNs, neurosurgeons are getting out of the practice of medicine because they're paying anywhere between $100,000 to $200,000 for their med mal insurance. So the question is, who do you want to be in charge of your health care? Do you want an HMO bureaucrat to be in charge of your health care? Do you want a government bureaucrat to be in charge of your health care? Or do you yourself want to be in charge of your own health care. Universal coverage can be achieved by universal choice in health care. The excitement over government-run mandated insurance to achieve universal coverage is not going to achieve universal coverage. We've seen what's happened in Massachusetts. We know what's happened in Canada and in Great Britain. What are we going to do? Where are the best doctors going to go, and where are we as patients going to go if the government takes over our health care system. 
Canadians have an escape valve. They come here. But where are we going to go? Am I going to set up the Liberty ship and sail around the world? But, you know, this is definitely, we will end up with ration care, long waiting lists, and lack of access to the latest technology. Somebody said to me the other day, if you were going to put this whole thing on a bumper sticker, what would you say? I said, taxes, increased taxes, reduced quality. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, I see Sally's uncovered my secret plan in the case that national health care passes in this country. I'm going to get pregnant, sell my rights to entertainment tonight, and use that money to finance my trip uh, to overseas to get treated. Uh, At any rate, uh, we do have some time for some questions, so uh, please feel free. Uh, Please wait till the microphone reaches you, because we do record this. I'm going to start here, and then I'll work my way to the back. We've got time for probably about five or six questions, so we'll see how how we do. It seems to me... Uh, Please identify yourself. Milton Grenfell, an architect private citizen. Uh, In any situation, uh, to understand it, you really need to get the language straight. And I've often wondered if calling what our medical industry is, our services, if calling that a system is really accurate. I mean, that implies it's sort of something that can be tinkered with and you can get it right, like an automotive machine or something. But, um, you know, is, is is that really a right way to describe our medical services delivery? Well, I, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, how is the best way to talk to pe- the American people about health care. And I started out talking about consumer-driven health care and health savings accounts. Now I talk about patient-centered care because I'm trying to sort of empower doctors and, and, and patients and let, sort of bring it down to the, the, the Pitts family, the person in the street. Um, I guess I, I, I haven't really thought about your question. Um, the health care system, um, you, you, as I say, we've got so much government in our health care system that, you know, if, you know, there are two industries in this country that are so full of government. One is the K-12 education system and one is our health care system. And um, if we can sort of break this down, go to patient-centered solutions, you know, allow people to make decisions, costs will come down. And we don't need to talk about the health care system. We can talk about individually, I have this health insurance, you have that health insurance. You may say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have health insurance. Or, and you may say, I want to because I'm, you know, very young. Why should I buy health insurance if I need to turn up at an emergency room? I can pay out of pocket, whatever. And you may say, I want a health insurance plan that just covers a catastrophe because that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about if I have a major event. And so, if we can, we can get away from the health system if we can return to patient-centered care. And people will individually talk about. I, I don't talk about the banking system and my visa card or the, um, um, you know, the pharmaceutical system and, you know, what drugs I take. So we need to get away from the system, but first we have to move to more patient-centered care. Raj Srinivasan, management consultant, private citizen. Um, My question is is regarding... um, your uh, description of rationing and, and and a desire to avoid rationing within the within the American medical system and, and, and your description of it in the, in the Canadian system. Now, I, I think that for most of us, when we when we think of uh, a civilized, uh, humane society, we would like to avoid seeing people bleed to death in the emergency rooms. And so, to an extent, we are willing to accept um, 
third-party payments or, 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 or some sort of rationing in order to, to meet uh, a certain minimum standard of care for, for people regardless of their, of their uh, access to, to insurance or coverage. Um, so there is a, uh, there is a rationing that, that would be inherent in any system that provides, um, provides emergency care or any sort of care for, for those who can't, cannot afford it regardless of their, uh, regardless of their, of their ability to afford uh, coverage. Uh, my question is: Is there a way to reconcile these two? So, we, if 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 we are willing to accept uh, a minimum standard of care, and we are, and and which in, which inherently ties in with rationing, um, is there a way to, to reconcile a, a desire for a market based system with with uh, with this? Well, first of all, we have a federal law in this country called EMTALA that nobody can be denied health care. I mean, if you don't have insurance, you can turn up at an emergency room, a community hospital, a community clinic, and also, and you will be covered under the charitable aspect of the hospital, or some, you know, there's a lot of money spent out of pocket by people who turn up at emergency rooms uh, for, for their health care, um, because they think it's cheaper than having insurance. So everybody in this country has access to health care. But what I think is interesting is that the programs, the government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, those programs, when you hear that private citizens who have insurance are paying a hidden tax to cover uncompensated care by people who don't have insurance, the research work that's been done by Dan Kessler at Stanford and some of the work we've done show shows that the, the uninsured add about 1% to the cost of premium. The Medicare and Medicaid people are adding about 10% to the cost of premium because government programs reimburse, you know, so low. And so here we are talking about going to, you know, a government-run program and, you know, reimbursement rates will be low. A lot of good young people probably won't go in into medicine. So the point is everyone has access to health care. Many more people will buy health care um, because of the 46 million, as Michael Tanner said, who are uninsured, um, 14 million are um, eligible for Medicaid and SCHIP and other government programs, but and uh, 10 million are illegal immigrants, but 17 million of them are people who are earning over $50,000 a year. They're between 18 and 31. They don't buy health insurance because it's a bad deal for them. But if we can make some of the changes I talked about, these people will buy insurance, and everybody, you know, will we will lead to universal coverage that way. Yeah, let, me, let me suggest that in terms of a dollar amount spent on, on a person for their health care, uh, people who are uninsured in this country get about two-thirds of the dollar amount spent that people, uh, people who have insurance do. So you don't get as good a health care in general if you're uninsured if you're insured, but you do get health care uh, by and large. In terms of rationing, uh, health care is a finite good. You know, people often, we, we always have this distraction, is health care a right or a privilege? Well, health care is a commodity. There's only so much money, so many hospitals, so many doctors around. It'll always be rationed in some form. The difference is price rationing, which is what we have now, you can overcome. You know, if you can't afford it, I can give you money and you can see a doctor. Fiat rationing, which is what the government does, you can't get around unless you're rich and famous, and then you or can go Canadian, and you can come to America. Right, but that's just saying well, I, I don't care. You, you know, you might be able to afford that. Uh, you might be able to spend your own money. It's your money. You worked hard for it. It's your body. It's your life. But I'm sorry, die anyway because we're not going to let you have that health care. That that's a that's a very different situation than I think price ration price rationing is. Uh, well, a lot of a lot of questions. I'll try to get to as many as I can. Green shirt. To, uh, my name is Mark. I'm with the Libertarian National Committee. Um, a way that we could fight this in the future, let's say this does pass, could you see, like, a couple entrepreneurs getting together and we start, like, parking hospital boats along the coast and we can just go take a boat, 
go get our thing. We won't have to worry about the government regulations. Could you see that happening in the future? Well, I think so, because as I said, the American people are very innovative and creative, and I would hope that would happen. The real problem is, you know, Canada has had several conservative prime ministers um, since 1974, and yet the health care system until now with the Supreme Court decision has not opened up. And I really worry that once we get a fully run government a program, how do, you, how, do you, how do you break it down? How do you get rid of it? So it's so important that we fight this now and, and win. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll have to go to my liberty ship or we'll be going to Brazil or whatever. But as Milton Friedman used to say to me, my mentor, you know, show me a government program that has, you know, been dismantled. And there are very, very few. So, you know, we have to be so careful to stop this. And, you know, all of us are working very hard to slow it down and to educate the American people on what all of this means in terms of spending, tax increases, and ration care. Thank you. My name is Richard Ranger. I work for API, but I'm speaking as a policyholder. Um, what is the difference, what, what would you project to be the difference in cost to those of us who have had company or employer-based insurance, and that, and that probably includes some of us in this room, um, for the remedies that you propose, what would be sort of the expected change in the cost borne by the patient? Would it be more, would it be less, and why? Well, I, per- I personally think it will reduce costs for, for people, and because people will be able to get the kind of insurance that suits their particular needs. For example, today, under the employer-based system, the Human Resources Department decides what health care plan um, they want, maybe one or two. Most, they range anywhere from twelve dollars to $15,000 a year. Why should young Courtney here, you know, have a $15,000 health care plan? Because she probably, she might only need $5,000 worth of health care. So you, they've topped all this up to be very, very expensive, and not everybody, you know, wants that much health care. So people should be able to, you know, buy a plan with a high deductible, um, you know, with, and it would be much cheaper. So I see going to patient-centered solutions, many more new entrants into the field in the insurance industry, and, and costs will definitely come, come down because 60% of Americans today get their health care through their employer. And, you know, as, as, as Michael said, you know, that was a um, program during World War II when wage and price controls were in power. Government got us into this huge mess in the first place, and now they're going to be even moving more to take it over. It's a shift in the form of compensation from being provided health insurance to being provided higher wages, of which you then use part of that to buy health insurance and part of that to pay for health expenses out of pocket if you have them. For most people who don't have high health expenses, they are actually going to realize higher uh, income overall. For a small number of people that I suppose could get caught in a crack and end up having higher out-of-pocket expenses than they do today, but most people will be, will be far, far better off. Take two more. Take that one, and then yours. I'll take three. Uh, my name is Ron. I'm a I'm a medical school student, and um, my question is regarding your uh, when you mentioned emergency hospitals and community clinics as options for access to healthcare. But I mean, the problem is I think we all know that going to an emergency room is not an option. It's not a viable and sustainable and cost effective option for access to healthcare. Um, it, it completely ignores the long term needs of patients, and also it's just it's really expensive, and it takes away it takes up space. Uh, for people who actually do need emergency services. And that's just one of the many problems right now that are kind of uh, inflating costs. Like, for example, the fee-for-service payment system is a, is a huge incentive for doctors to do multiple tests that aren't necessarily useful. So my question is, like, without really 
having a uh, having a private health insurance market doesn't address these cost issues. And you also mentioned that healthcare is a commodity, so and there are people who simply will not be able to afford any type of health insurance. So where is that money going to come from? Sure. Well, let, let, let me you just point out in terms of. The cost of who shows up in the emergency is most likely to show up in the emergency room. It's not necessarily the uninsured person. More people show up who are on Medicaid than actually show up who are uninsured because Medicaid under-reimburses to such a degree that they can't find primary care physicians who are willing to accept that low level of payment, and they end up being pushed into the Medicaid system. So simply having a government insurance system is not liable, not necessarily going to lead to the uh, the solving the problem of people showing up at the emergency room. Massachusetts went to its universal coverage system, and they, they reduced the number of people without insurance by about two-thirds, but they only reduced the people showing up at the emergency room by about a third. So it, it doesn't necessarily uh, translate to simply have more insurance coverage will deal with that problem of people showing up at the, up at the emergency, emergency room. Uh, the, the best way we can do in terms of the free market system, and I'll let Sally comment on this, is if you would do away with a lot of the mandates, if you do a lot of lay with a lot of the regulations to drive up the cost of health insurance, you'll get more young and healthy people making that rational decision to buy health insurance while they're still young and healthy, which will reduce the number of people who are uninsured. Second, if you move away from an employer-based health care system, to one in which people have individual insurance, you won't face the problem of losing your health insurance every time you lose your job. Uh, that will also increase the number of people with insurance, which will largely reduce the problem that you have. But there's no ultimate way to prevent people from ending up in the emergency room. Sally? Yeah, and portability, of course, is a huge thing, as, as Michael just said. And during a recession, when a lot of people have lost their jobs or they quit their job, then they lose their insurance. They go into the individual market, and they have to buy insurance with their after-tax income as opposed to pre-tax. And so that's a very... Um, very important point. In Massachusetts, um, the latest numbers out, you know, the, the program was passed in April 2006, and still 2.3, 2.5 million people in Massachusetts are still uninsured, even with an individual and employer mandate. And the new numbers out are that 23 million people, uh, uh, um, 23% of the population turned up at the emergency room prior to the passage of Romney Care, and it's the same percentage today, even though there's an individual and an employer mandate. So we need to, you know, give people options. And if, if we can get more people into the individual market, you know, people will get the type of insurance and pools will be larger and therefore able to, you know, support um, the type of health care that people need. But it'll be um, and, and coverage of people who, you know, those few people that will be uninsured. Uh, there was one in the back and then the gal in the black dress and that's it. My name is Mark Tachico. I'm a veteran, U.S. Army Infantry. Uh, when I was a soldier, I didn't have a copayment, the deductible. I didn't have a primary care physician. Uh, I got the care that I needed. Uh, you had specialists. You had general practitioners. You had nurses who all agreed to accept a set wage. They had contracted uh, to, to receive this. Uh, in your opinion, was this a, is this a well-run, efficient uh, government health system? And if it is, could it be adapted uh, for the general public? Well, I, I think that we just saw uh, with the scandal at Walter Reed uh, about a year ago some of the problems that goes on with the uh, U.S. military health care system. It is bureaucratic. Uh, raising complaints about the quality of care is very difficult. Uh, having anything done with the complaints you do raise is even more difficult. 
Uh, hospitals are often misallocated. You look to the Veterans Administration. Hospitals are built in districts with no veterans because some committee chairman uh, can get benefits from that, while other hospitals are running at 120 and 150 percent of capacity uh, because they're not in influential congressional districts. Uh, the VA has recently disenrolled uh, several hundred thousand uh, previously eligible individuals because their budget uh, couldn't keep up with it. They don't have the number of people to handle trauma care and psychological care as a result of the, of the Veterans War. And the bureaucracy is incredible. One of my favorite stories is a uh, fellow talking to Newsweek a couple of years ago was an African-American veteran who had lost his leg, and they gave him a white prosthesis. Uh, and he kept going to the VA and trying to point out that he was black, and could they keep giving him a, could they give him a black prosthesis? And they said, sorry, your form here says you're white. <laughs> so, uh, right, and also, you know, on, on pharmaceuticals and things, they the VA has um, formularies, and a lot of the new drugs, even Lipitor, is not on the formulary um, in the VA system. And while people will say, well, you know, Zocor is is fine, you know, not every drug is perfect for every person, and so the VA they can hold down costs by denying. Uh, the latest pharmaceuticals, biologics, or even denying care. There are, you know, waiting lists, as Michael said, at a lot of the VA hospitals that are in areas where there are a lot of veterans. Yeah, actually, there was a study by, was it Daniel Lichtenberg uh, and others at Columbia that showed that the Bob, formula... Bob Lichtenberg, yeah. Bob, I'm sorry? Bob, Bob Lichtenberg. That showed Frank, that, Frank uh, Lichtenberg, sorry. ...showed that the uh, formularies actually in Medicaid, uh, VA hospitals were so restrictive that it was costing uh, like two months of life. Uh, for patients who were uh, on, on average that. Last question was here in the front. Yep, it's yours. Black. Just get the uh, mic down here, and, and then we'll let you go eat. I'm Alexandra Ulmer for the Financial Times. Alexandra Ulmer for the Financial Times. Um, concretely, what do you expect this bill to look like? How hard do you think it will be to pass, and when do you expect legislator to go through? Well, <laughs> I think it is about a 50-50 shot of it, it passing right now. I think there is a great deal of nervousness among moderate Democrats in the Senate, the Blue Dogs in the House and others. Uh, I think particularly the Blue Dogs just walked the plank on the cap-and-trade bill to pass that. They've been beaten up back home uh, in advertisements. They're very nervous about anything that's going to have new taxes as a result. So I think, uh, I think the passage is very close in both the House and, and the Senate in terms of the final vote. What will it look like? It's going to look a lot like what we've seen. I mean, in terms of the basic things, it's going to have an employer mandate. It's going to have an individual mandate. It's going to have a public option of some kind with a government-run system. Uh, it's going to have some sort of comparative effectiveness research. They're going to throw a lot of money at things like uh, com uh, medical records. They're going to have subsidies uh, that range in the 300 or 400 percent of poverty level. Uh, so I, I think, we're, and a lot of insurance regulation, guaranteed issue, community rating, things like that. Uh, I have a paper out there called Seven Bad Ideas for Healthcare Reform. I believe the House bill hit all seven. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, as opposed to being 50-50, one week I think it's going to happen, and the next week I'm saying it won't happen. But I think something is, is, is going to happen, but it is going to be very close because, you know, individual mandate, employer mandate, a public-run plan. But the more frightening thing is the tax increases that we're going to face. Um, you know, they're talking about um, under the House bill 2.5% tax for any individual who doesn't have private insurance or government insurance. They're talking about, 
you know, raising the top marginal tax rate to between 40 to 45 percent. Um, you know, when Obama says, if you like your health care and you like your insurance plan, you'll be able to keep it, I just don't see that this is going to happen and that the, this is going to be paid for by wealthy Americans. I am absolutely positive that this is going to be paid for by all Americans, lower middle-income, middle-income people, and, and the, there aren't enough wealthy people to pay for what this will cost, and that's what it'll cost will be way out of control, and then we'll have to see setting up that global budget and ration care. Yeah, let, let, let me, so you just mentioned one point. I just want to make that, and then I'll let everyone go up and eat, about whether or not you could, if you have your health insurance and you like it, you can keep it. The president keeps saying that. His own spokesman at the White House have come out and said that that doesn't mean, they didn't mean that literally. Right, uh, right. That, when you, that you could keep it. And the simple fact is that, for example, with the public option and the, the Lewin estimates, about 118, 119 million Americans would be forced out of their employer-provided insurance into the government-run option. Under the individual mandate, if you had health insurance today and it didn't meet the government's uh, uh, right. idea of what insurance you should have, for example, uh, they're debating right now, should it include abortion coverage? Well, what if you are pro-life and you don't want abortion coverage and the, you don't have it in your current insurance and the government comes out and says you have to have it, then you've got to give up your current policy and buy the abortion coverage that the government says you want. So, uh, so a lot of people will not be able to keep the health insurance that they currently have. Right. Thank you all very much. We have snacks upstairs. Sally will be around to answer some questions. Thank you. Uh, once again, I mentioned her book, ten, uh, The Top Ten Myths of American Health Care, should be available out there uh, for you. Thank you.